Um, last week, for those of you that weren't here, so that's uh, one, two, two. For those of you that weren't here, we went through uh, the last part of Genesis 2 and a good part of Genesis 3. And I'm not going to repeat that stuff tonight. I don't have time. Uh, but we were, we got to the point where we were, or rather Adam and Eve were pointing fingers. Adam was pointing fingers at the woman and the woman was pointing fingers at the serpent and the serpent didn't have any fingers to point. So, um, so God in verse 14 is speaking to the serpent. Notice that he doesn't ask the serpent why did you do this? Okay? Or why did you take it? He didn't ask a question like he did with the man and the woman. That's because um, this is not this is not something that uh, he's going to enter into conversation with with Satan. This is not like uh, going to be a debate about something. Satan knew quite well what God had said. He even quoted it back to Eve. And so God's not messing with that. Now, in Romans chapter 3, I think it's verse 10, it says that uh, at the final day that uh, all mouths will be closed before God. Okay? Um, So there won't be a bunch of um, erstwhile philosophers, atheists, religionists, um, pop psychologists and so on lining up to reason with God and try and arguing, argue him out of his dogmatism. Okay? Uh, it's going to be, okay, this is what you did, this is what is coming your way. I mean, they can object as much as they want, but they won't actually because every mouth will be closed. I think it's Romans 3.10. Let me turn to it quickly so I can... I've already given you one wrong reference tonight, so let me see if I can not repeat the error. Uh, It's not 10, is it? Uh, Let's see. it was earlier than that. Yeah, 19. Uh, 19, it is 19. Yeah, that's right. Um, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Uh, Law given because to show us guilt. Uh, Thanks for that. Rescue me again. All right. So, God speaking to the serpent... Because, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. He, the, the serpent was created at the same time of the beast of the field in the first part of day six. So that's why that's in there, if you wondered why that was in there. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. 
This seems to mean, at least to me, that he wasn't on his belly before God said this. Um, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. So this uh, this next text is a very important text and we will start here. It's what's often known as the Protevangelium. You know, the proto-gospel. And uh, it's it's very condensed and it's not that clear, is it? I mean, there are some things that are clear and some things that are not so clear in it. Well, let's see if we can pick it apart. Uh, the first line, I, God, is going to do something. He's going to put enmity. Enmity is a, a hatred that can't be quenched. It can't be... Uh, um, overcome between you and the woman so uh, Satan is going to hate the woman and his seed and hers So that's the first part. Now, you can't understand this until you read the whole thing, okay? People want to to rush into this and say, okay, well, uh, Satan must have seed then, and the woman must have seed, and you'll get uh, biblical theologians who will say this, the woman's seed are all believers. Okay? And Satan's seed, unbelievers, okay, well, there'll be an enmity between them all the time. It preaches okay, but that's not what God is driving at here. And we know that if we just read a little bit more. Um, He. Who's the he? The woman's seed. So the woman's seed is an individual. He. Do you see that? Shall bruise your head. Okay? And you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be a bit of reciprocation. Um, There's no chronology given here. Um, No sequence. It's rather vague, quite honestly. Uh, But what we can come away with, at least, is that the woman's seed deals with an individual. So, Satan's seed either deals with an individual, okay, or it's just dealing with Satan incarnate in another, at another time. Now, I see, I think here that this aspect belongs over here in the ground of speculation. I really don't think you can be definitive on this. But do you want me to have a stab at it? No? (laughs) I think that this is probably the Antichrist who is being spoken of. You know who? You heard of the Antichrist? Okay. The reason, now, we don't don't necessarily want to call him the Antichrist. He's not called that apart from at the end of the New Testament. But um, this character, um, 
the little horn, if you like, of Daniel 7. He keeps cropping up, actually, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, he's there quite a bit. And so this individual, whatever you, however you refer to him, it could be talking about him. Um, and so the seed is obviously going to be a spiritual seed of some sense, I would have thought. But, I, you know, again, we're in the, we're in the land of, of speculation somewhat because we don't have enough information here. I know people who make um, careers out of speculating about stuff like this. Okay, but I don't do that because I'm tight. Now, down to this, this here, okay, this is the important stuff. The important stuff is that this seed of the woman, and normally it would be seed of the man. Later on in scripture, we're going to see that pattern, not seed of the woman, show up at all. So there's something interesting going on here. Virgin birth, possibly. I, I think so. But again, not much we can say about that right now, just a sec. But we can say that it's a he. It is an individual. This individual is going to uh, bruise or crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is going to bruise or crush the heel of the seed. Well, it hurts a lot to have your heel bruised or crushed. But you'll live. If your skull is crushed, you're not going to live. Okay, You're done for. That is what God means. Your doom, Satan, is going to come about from this person who comes from the woman who you tricked. You brought humanity into this condition. Humanity is going to bring you into the, a, the condition of destruction and everlasting torment. Do you see this? So the very mechanism that you messed up is going to be the mechanism that brings about your destruction. That's what this is saying. But it's called by many people, I think it's, uh, it's a Reformation thing or maybe a little bit before, I'm not sure where this comes from this term. Uh, but it's, it's called a, a kind of a pre-gospel. And it is a pre-gospel, but only by inference, only by intimation is it a gospel at all. Gospel means good news. Okay? And really, there's, the only good news that's going on is that um, Satan's going to get his. And as this is spoken, not to the man, not to the woman, but to the serpent, it's not good news. It's bad news to the guy that it's taught, spoken to, isn't it? So straight away you see what's going on with this, this uh, idea here. Why do they say that it's a gospel um, of the promised redeemer, which is how I've preached it before, and I, I would continue to preach it that way. Um, why would they say that, though? Because there's nothing in the text that drives us to that conclusion. 
The only thing the text is saying is that Satan, you are going to be destroyed by the seed of the one that you tried to destroy. Okay? No mention of the salvation of Adam. There's no mention of redemption at all here in this text. It's not redemptive. Do you know what I mean by redemptive? No salvation is offered here. Okay? Yeah. That, that's the good news. But if, if, if we're destroyed because of our sin, so what? Um, so, what has happened here by people, me included, that use this text to preach a Christmas sermon or something like that, is that, and we've got to realise this, is that we are freighting in our knowledge of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and Paul's gospel back into this text. You see? And then we're using it um, and um, we are kind of retrofitting it with all of this New Testament material and then we are presenting it again to ourselves as good news to us. But it's only good news to us once we get the accumulation of uh, promises that we find later on in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. Okay? You say, well, why are you even bothering to talk about this? Why don't you just get on with it? Because um, is this a really important point? Well, it is to me because uh, what I care about is accurate reading of the Bible. I, I really try as much as I can, and I can't stop myself completely, but I try very much not to read uh, what I think I know into texts that don't say what I think they should say. Do you see? I want to try to come at the text as though it's fresh, although as though I'm hearing it for the first time, or as though I'm, I'm Adam, listening to what God's saying to the serpent and trying to decipher what's going on. And I'm not going to come away with, hey, Jesus died on the cross for me, or he's going to. That's not what I'm going to come away with. I'm going to come away with um, Satan's going to be overcome through the woman and I may infer that that means there's hope for me. Okay? Um, there are, there's a whole system of theology that says that the Bible is, uh, it's, they've got a fa- fancy name for it, of course, is redemptive historical. This is the big thing in he, uh, evangelicalism today. Historical. All right. And um, they say, well, yeah, it's just the story of redemption from beginning to end. Well, where do you start it? Well, you start it here, they say. But you see, you've not started it here because you actually started it in the New Testament and then read the New Testament back into this. Do you see? Because this is not a redemptive text. I mean, it's just not. 
I'll spoil it even more for you. The Abrahamic covenant isn't a redemptive text either. Salvation is not promised to anybody in, in the Abrahamic covenant or the Noahic covenant. I mean, it's physical salvation promised for those who will get on board the ark. There's no, there's no, yeah, and get on board the ark and you'll have a lasting life. Do you see? So, the redemptive element is something that's going to be supplied. That's supplied later on and understood um, as far as our, what we've got of the Bible. Okay? As far as we can read in the Bible, it's going to be supplied by and by. Now, God may have well said, okay, um, you know, whoever, stop writing now, just write that little bit. Or said to Moses when he was writing it, stop writing this bit. Uh, then there's all, all this other stuff that I said to Adam and Eve about, oh yeah, and it's going to be my son, he's going to die on a Roman cross. A Roman cross is something that was invented a few thousand years from now by a group of people called the Persians who you never heard of, and then the Romans who you never heard of took it over. And Yeah, I mean, we could have had some of that, but we don't know. All that we have is what this says, so this is what we use to determine what is God's truth and what isn't. Anything else is speculation. You see? That's the way I, I work. Um, so, um, what was I going to say? Just that, um, what this does say, though, is something extremely important that shouldn't be missed. And that is that whoever he is, he's pretty important. He's pretty cool. And he's going to show up again. So we need to watch out for this guy. That you can take. And this seems to be an understanding that, that people had in the Old Testament. And, it's, and it grows more and more with the accumulation of revelation. So that by the time we get to the New Testament, we have enough information about this individual to be able to spot him when he shows up. Or not, if we don't want to. All right. Um, I'll leave that up for a minute. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Right, so we don't need a commentary on that, do we? <clears throat> but we do need a commentary on this next bit. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Um, the idea of ruling here is uh, a kind of an overbearing rule, somewhat. But what about your desire will be for your husband? Is this that you know, every woman is just uh, wants to uh, dote on her paramour and um, 
you know, just wants to fall into his arms and, you know, do anything that he wants her to do and that's it because she loves him so much and it's just all about him. No, it's not that at all. This desire has actually got to do with a, des- uh, a, a wrong desire. Why? Because God is not uh, saying nice things to Adam and Eve right now. Just look what he says to Adam. God's not in a good mood. God is saying, this is something that I'm going to do and it's not nice. So your desire for your husband is not going to be something that's pleasant to you or nice to you or nice for you to bear. Do you see? Well, what could that mean? Well, um, it probably, in the context, means a desire for preeminence, a desire to be above the husband, and yet there's this frustration that he will rule over you, but not as an understanding and as a nice head, but rather as this person that, you know, will kind of put you down a bit. Do you see that? That There's a tension that's built into this. Now, this view is confirmed for us in the next chapter, at least a little bit more, with the, the uh, story of Cain and Abel. Remember that uh, Cain is uh, is jealous, basically, of his brother. And verse 6 says, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, crouches at the door, like ready to spring. That's the idea here. And it's, what's that next word? Desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. But what's the desire here? Sin's desire to what? To rule over Cain. To overcome Cain. Who won out? Or what won out? Sin won out because the very next thing that Cain does is kill his brother. Become a murderer. Do you see? So the desire here is, is a desire to, um, to overwhelm or a desire to, to get into a position that you weren't given. Do you see? To get mastery over. Now when we look at it this way, we're going back to uh, the Genesis 3 text. <coughs> Whoops. Uh, when we look at it this way, then what we find is this. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, it is Adam that's made first. Adam names Eve. He names a woman and then later on you'll see he names her Eve. Okay? Woman taken out of man. The naming is an authoritative role. It shows authority over the thing named. Okay? God names 
his creation in chapter 1. He gives this naming ability to Adam to name the animals because he's been given dominion over the animals. Then he's taken into a deep sleep once he realizes he doesn't have a companion. God takes a companion out of him, from him, and then he names the woman. Do you see? Also, we see that Adam is given the responsibility of headship. How do we know this? Well, we know it as well from the New Testament, but we also know it because when uh, Eve partook, partook, nothing happened. When Adam partook, the eyes of both of them were opened. And who gets the blame? Adam. In the Bible, Adam. In Adam all die. Okay? So, the responsibility means that Adam, uh, being the first, being over uh, mankind, means that he was also over his wife. Now, that was a a wonderful relationship. She was a companion to him. Um, The the Hebrew word is a stronger word than companion. It means that she's a a perfect fit for him. Um, But then you get this curse comes in and then, you know, after the, uh, what we'll call the curse, then you get this other element coming in which kind of messes this up a bit and uh, the man will be authoritarian and the woman will be um, well let's see unhappy let's say with her role. Now, obviously, there's a lot into this. Do I, do I need to go into this a lot? It's not a systematic theology te- uh, class here or a class on marriage or anything like that. Nope. So, can I use these fairly vague terms and you kind of get it? All right, I'm not going to step on anybody's sensibilities by just using this kind of language, I hope. Let's just look at it for what it is. If you look at your marriage, or marriages generally, do you see this? Do you see this? The husband is not as understanding as he should be. He's not thinking of you. You know, this is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that the husbands are to live with the woman, with the wife, to honour her as the weaker vessel, okay, meaning he's got the responsibility, he's got the headship, uh, and live with her according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of her. Which I know, I you know, guys always say, that's impossible. <laughs> and women say, what's so impossible? It's easy. I'm an open book. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, but the problem is you're the Encyclopedia Britannica. 
But, but you see, this, this tension that we're kind of joking about, you know, um, this tension is this. It's a reflection of this. You know the joke about um, why, did, why did God create the man first? Okay? Because he didn't want the woman being told, telling him what to do. <laughs> and then the, the other one is, um, why did he create the woman second? Because he thought he could do better the second time. You see? But, but what it does is that it, again, shows this tension, doesn't it? However we express it, whether we express it in humour, whether we express it in the tensions of, of marriage or whatever, we need to be aware that this thing is powerful. Maybe it, it will humble us a little bit to realise that this is a real issue that's going on. We've got to counter it by the grace of God. Now, folks, men, you're not to counter this. You're to counter this. And women, you're not to counter this. You're to counter this. Because you can't change him and he can't change you. Do you see? And I'm talking to you as one that hasn't got this down. So I'm not trying to, I'm just teaching you what the Bible says. But it does say this, and this is important for you to understand. This is something that God gives to the woman. To the woman. Why? Because she's worse than the man? Oh no, absolutely not. Definitely not. But this is, this is the, the burden that she bears because of the fall. And I, I hope that expressing it in this way at least gives you some understanding of why men are so intractable and dumb and, you know, don't get it. Yes? And how you can maybe help them without trying to, you know, lapse into this and trying to control them and trying to, you know, fix them. Um, how you can help them to maybe see how they can treat you um, with understanding. Most Christian husbands I know, not all of them, some of them are jerks. But most Christian husbands I know want to um, treasure their wife. They want to, you know, they want their wife to know they love them. Um, so, are you okay with this? Let's go on to the man. Then to Adam he said... See the, the progression? He's starting with the serpent, then he's going to the woman, and now he's going to the first one he made, or the, one, the, the first human he made, who he gave dominion to, even over the woman, although the woman's got dominion also over the rest of creation. Um, <clears throat> look at what is said. Because you heeded the voice of your wife, well, shouldn't men heed the voice of their wives? 
Obviously not in this matter. Not in matters that are against the word of God. Okay? Not in matters that are um, her tempting you to do something you shouldn't do. Because you heeded the voice of your wife rather than the voice of God, you can put that in, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Uh, where did he say that? Hold on, let's see if we can... Uh, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Oh, he did say that, didn't he? Because God means what he says. Um, folks, when you stand before uh, the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, which we're not covered yet, but, but we must all give an account, okay, for the way that we've lived in this body. Um, when we do that, it's going to be the obvious things that he's going to bring up. Why didn't you do this? Because I told you to do this. Any problem? Savvy? You know? You understand what I said there, yes? Yes, yeah. Why don't you do it? It's going to be kind of like that, you see? Because God means what he says. So, because you've done that, you've eaten the fruit, cursed, now this is big, cursed is the ground for your sake. If you want somebody to blame for all of the, um, the, the diseases, all of the uh, disasters, the earthquakes, the weather patterns and all of that, that mess up this earth, it's the man. He's, as we will see, he's taken from the ground. He's Adam, to remind him he's from the dirt. Means dirt, ground. He's Adam. Um, And he's to rule over it, but now it's going to, just like the woman is going to have a struggle with the man, the man's going to have a struggle with the woman, now man's going to have a struggle with the ground. That was made for him. That was a perfect environment for him. Now he's going to struggle against it. He's going to fight against him. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But, by the way, that clause, all the days of your life, that's kind of a um, chilling clause, isn't it? Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That means it didn't bring forth thorns and thistles before. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Uh, there are people, uh, well-meaning people, I love them and all that. And just, I'm not saying it has anything to do with their relationship to Christ or their love of God or anything like that. But folks, there weren't any thorns and thistles before the fall. There wasn't any death before the fall. In the day that you eat of it, 
you, you will surely die. And according to Romans 5, it was um, Adam that brought sin into the world and death came in with it. Okay? So when God was speaking to Adam and Eve here, you know, they weren't standing on a bunch of dinosaur bones that had died 60 million years before. Um, they weren't standing on a bunch of fossilized thistles. Do you see? There weren't any thistles, but there were going to be thistles. So again, this is a real problem for um, old earthers. It really is. Because the scripture, I think, is really quite clear on this. Now, again, if you're an old earther, I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable much, but I am... But I am just trying to point out to you that you've got to face this problem. If you can't face this problem, if you're going to uh, you're going to have a fisticuffs with this text, then look at yourself. Because why are you arguing against the word of God here? What's making you do that? Are you intimidated by somebody? You do know that all, all dinosaur bones that have been recovered have got carbon-14 in them. Did you know that? The, uh, <clears throat> carbon-14, the, it ekes out of everything that it's in in 60,000 years. So if, you, if it's in a dinosaur bone and you date the dinosaur bone to 65 million years, it can't be 65 million years old if it's got carbon-14 in it. Because the carbon-14 would have run out 60,000 years after it was buried. They dug up a, a dinosaur in Alaska about two months ago. Any of you hear about that? It was a new hardrosaur that they haven't found before, a duck-billed thing. What they didn't report was that it, the bones weren't fossilized. Many dinosaur bones are not fossilized. And you, you also probably know, I hope, that uh, Mary Schweitzer and uh, others have, have found... Um, Dinosaur skin, they found dinosaur tissue, soft tissue, DNA. Living red blood cells. Yeah, red blood cells, thank you. What, 65 million years old? Skin, tissue? Do you know any other tissue that's, that's 65 million years old? Or a million years old? Why do we have soft dinosaur tissue? Well, maybe because they didn't die out 65 million years ago. Maybe because the earth is young after all. If the earth was young, it wouldn't be a problem, would it? Because you would know that and expect to find dinosaur bones with carbon-14 in them or diamonds with carbon-14 in them. And they are, they do find carbon-14 in diamonds too. Diamonds come from where? the centre of the earth, actually. They come from the deep down in the earth and they're kind of brought up by eruptions. 
So they would be the oldest things. They're considered some of the very oldest materials on earth. And yet they've got carbon-14 in them. So, again, please, whatever the difficulties, and there are some difficulties because we don't have all the whole picture. Um, there's, there's plenty of evidence for a young earth as well as the fact that the Bible teaches it. Right. Moving on. He's saying in verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. There's the death. I mean the physical death. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. But he has a soul. Remember he became a living soul in chapter 2. So that's good, but his body is dust. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Why is that important? She's the mother of all living human beings, obviously. Why is that important? There aren't different races of men, folks. There's one race of of human beings. Just because, you know, because of um, diversity of climate and, and uh, um, mix of A and B uh, molecules and so on, and all the different combinations that there can be, just because uh, the chromosome, sorry, because of those things, um, people look different now. But we're all related. We're, that's the Bible teaches that we all come from one mother, not different mothers, different apes. So it's a human, it's the human race, it's, it's humanity generally. That's part of the biblical worldview, don't miss it. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Of course, uh, what we want to do here is we want to say, and how did he make the, clo- the clothes of skin? I know, because there were furry critters around uh, that God killed and took their coats and made them for the man and the woman. And he may well have done that. But we don't know that he did that. We don't know that he did that because we're not told that he did that. Okay, so again, I'm just going to say um, that beware of reading into the text what's not there. Um, it was just as easy for God to, you know, rumble up two warm uh, animal skins for the humans to wear as to kill two innocent animals. Okay? It doesn't preach as well, but it's just as easy. He said that he made these tunics of skin. It certainly does tell us this, that the, the clothing that they made to cover them wasn't good enough. But God, instead of saying, you're going to have to do better than that, he was gracious towards them. You see, he, uh, he was angry towards them. These curses, my, they, they are just a few verses long, but Gracious me, the history of humanity has shown how 
terrible these curses are. Um, But uh, then God is gracious. This is a pattern that we're going to see throughout Scripture. Sometimes God's going to come at them, come at Israel, really put them through the fire, and then he's going to be gracious to them. He's going to give them a word of promise, for example. Uh, This is what God's like. God, he always judges faithfully, but he also remembers mercy. And if you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you mess up or you fall into sin, then do not fall for Satan's lie that you've got to get your, your life sorted out before God will give you a hearing. Because you didn't attain the uh, sainthood, okay? You didn't attain sainthood by your own efforts. And you are jolly well not going to keep it by your own efforts either. It is not your efforts, it is your attitude that God is concerned about. So if you're struggling with sin or if you've, you've fallen into sin and, and, you know, whatever it is, alcoholism, gambling or whatever it might be, um, if you have these kinds of things that are dominating your life, you've got to go to God as a wretch that you are and ask his forgiveness, ask his cleansing and ask for help. But you've got to go to him. You've got to go to him. Now, don't wait until you feel it's right to, you know, to go to him because then it's not, you're never actually going to do it because you'll never feel right. Then the Lord God uh, said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Who's he talking to? Gabriel and the rest of the bunch? No. He's talking to himself. To know good and evil. See, they were never supposed to know good and evil. They were never supposed to know evil. They were never supposed to have that kind of prerogative. That Knowledge in a fallen human particularly is a terribly destructive knowledge because the curse has shown that these propensities that we have, they're going to cause an awful lot of evil. Chapter 4, first instance of that. Envy, murder. He knows good and evil. He knows something he wasn't supposed to know. Not, not to the degree that he now knows them. And of course, he knows good and evil to an extent, but then because he's fallen and he's corrupted and he's twisted, he doesn't know good like he should know good. Do you find it easy to do good? Do you find it easy to do evil? See, there's a problem there, isn't there? And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God, this is kind of an interruption from Moses. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Well, I'm dumb enough to think that the reason that he had to be thrust out of the garden was that 
if he wasn't thrust out of the garden, he would have access to the tree of life and keep eating the fruit of it and live forever. In that cursed state. In that cursed state. you imagine what a monster he would become? Yes? I was just thinking, why didn't they... Um, I mean, Satan must have worked pretty fast. The Lord said they could eat of every tree in the garden. Why didn't they already eat of the tree of life? Or did they already eat of the tree of life? I think they were... They were eating on the tree of life, yes. Connected constantly, Yes. I think that they, that's why I said they would have to continue to eat of it. Their sustenance was from the tree of life to keep them alive. That's my view. Otherwise, why have a tree of life there? I mean, they could eat from it, couldn't they? If they had eternal life anyway, then why have the tree of life? And if they didn't have eternal life, well, what could they do? Eat from the tree of life. Do you see? So, it makes sense to say that they had to partake of the tree of life. You say, well, that seems to be a little bit demeaning, a little bit, you know, confused. It's actually beautiful. Because uh, Adam is interacting with creation. You know, tree huggers have got something right. They want to go and hug the tree and feel the tree and be with the tree. Okay? Well, it all gets very silly. But in a redeemed paradisical state, um, there is some kind of um, interaction, as it were. Not The tree is not interacting, but, but the human... Is uh, resonates with the tree that's made for him by God, with the flower, with the sunrise, in a way that we don't. Do you see? They see things in creation and they they understand things about creation that we don't, because that sense has been dulled. Um. So, him partaking from the tree of life is kind of a beautiful interaction between the man and the creation. It, it shows that uh, in, in the delight of the garden, in the delight of the uh, young earth, that there's this, this interaction between the man and the, the ground and the, the uh, beauty of the, of the world that he is. Um, partaking of. If he had an everlasting life, he wouldn't have to eat anyway, would he? But he obviously did have to eat. Uh, we, you might remember that when we get to course three, because we're going to bring this together. Okay? Because in the book of Revelation in the New Jerusalem, there is the tree of life. Again, it shows up again. <clears throat> it's for the healing of the nations. All right. So God is concerned about man taking from the tree of life. He's got to be barred from the tree of life. So that's the reason given for him being thrust out of Eden. Not that I don't like you anymore and uh, I like to walk around this place and I don't want to bump into you, so out you go. It's not that. It's just got to do with the fact that he can't eat that tree anymore. So he's got to go. 
So the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, drove him out. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. Cherubim crop up every now and again, especially in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Uh, They're these weird creatures, really weird creatures. Ezekiel describes them better than anybody else. And uh, they don't look like men. Angels in the Bible always look like men. Cherubim don't look like men. They look weird. So cherubim are angelic, but they're not angels. There's some other heavenly critter that's that's out there, okay? And these things are are placed before um, the garden east of the Garden of Eden. Notice the east there. And the flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, it's the tree of life he can't get to. Alright, one more thing before we move on a little bit more here because we've got stuff to do. East. So, you will find that history moves in the Bible, history moves east to west. Whenever in the Bible we're going west to east, that's bad news. When you're moving east, that's bad news. When you're moving west, that's good news. Just one of those things, guys. I'm just telling you. In history, that's usually the way too. Look at Christian missions. Christian missions have gone usually, nearly always, east to west and come round that way. Okay? Normally when they've gone west to east, they've been heresies. Just true. You've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a heretical uh, Gnostic document from people that went west to east. Okay? Probably Ancretites. Usually that's how you get it. You have Nestorians who in the third century went from uh, west to east, but the Nestorians also had a heretical teaching about the person of Christ. They probably went all the way to China, but um, they did have a heretical doctrine. Uh, Truth has normally travelled east to west. History has travelled east to west. There's freebie for you. Chapter 4. So, we don't need to go into this very much. You know what happened. Um, Cain is... uh, He's envious of Abel because Abel's uh, offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected. But if Cain would have had good motives, his offering we know, because God told him, would have been accepted. Yes? I read it for you. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And people say, well, that's because um, Cain brought fruit and veg. And that was from the ground that was cursed, you see. So you should have realised that we needed a lamb like Abel, who brought a lamb as an offering. 
you know, we should have had this sorted out. I mean, he should have had his typology sorted out. But folks, it's got nothing to do with that. The lamb eats the fruit from the ground and the grass, which is cursed. The lamb's just as cursed as the, as the fruit. The fruit's not guilty of anything. Do you see? It's not got to do with the offering. It's got to do with the offerer. That's the issue that God had with Cain. Why is your countenance fallen? There was something also um, in the offering, we're not really sh- uh, told. It just says the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. There was something in the way that he brought it that was the issue. And that's all that we can say. But even then, God wanted to be gracious to Cain. God knew what Cain was about to do. He warned him about it. He said, I'll, I'll accept you. You're not cut off from me. You know, you're not, I don't think you're any worse than anyone else. But Cain became a murderer. This kind of brings about what's called the reign of sin. The sin is, reign, is now reigning over Cain and will reign over humanity. Particularly what's going to be picked out here is Cain's line. Coming back to Lamech here, uh, who in uh, verse 23 is actually boasting about killing a young man. And... Uh, Also what's interesting here is that uh, all of these uh, uh, skilled people are coming uh, from the line of Cain. You have uh, Jabal and Jubal and Tubal Cain and so on and they're all smart guys. So smart guys can come from wicked stock. (laughs) You know, just uh, sometimes that's annoying. Whereas why these, these genius people uh, sometimes can have such nasty lives and so on, but that's just the way it is sometimes. Uh, a mark was put on Cain. We really don't know what that mark was. We're not told what it was. But uh, it is interesting that he says that uh, I shall be, verse 14, a, a fugitive and vagabond on the earth and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Well, where did anyone come up? come from anyway where did all these other people come from well let's put it another way where did Cain get his wife well from his sister yes of course Um, Adam and Eve we're told had sons and daughters Uh, that's in chapter 5 verse 4 Sons and daughters. And so, over a period of time, Cain married his sister. That sounds all weird to us and uncomfortable to us and we just don't want to think about it, but, but uh, it would be very weird if you married a monkey. Okay, well, you're going to marry a human being. By the way, that's what evolutionists, I mean, they, they, they have to teach something like that, you know. But... Um, 
yeah, he married his sister. Well, there's not, there would be nothing wrong with marrying your sister in that climate, in that environment. I know it feels very weird and strange to us and so on, but that's because we've just, you know, we're cultures away from it and we're very different now um, physiologically because of the deterioration of um, the human genome from what it was. You know, we've got about two and a half thousand faults in the average human being nowadays, in the average human genome. And that gets worse generation upon generation, by the way. So, our great-great-grandchildren, if Christ tarries, will have probably 3,000. Yeah? There'll be problems in that, those areas. Um, I mean, if you, if you know all of these uh, Victorian novels and, and uh, Shakespeare plays, you know that people married their cousins. And that wasn't a problem. You say, well, that just makes me feel really weird and that was, that's perverse. But it's not. Or it is now, but it wasn't then. Do you see? So, you might not feel comfortable saying the answer, but that is the answer. He married his sister. Because there were plenty of people around at that time. All right, moving on. Chapter 5. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, again telling you, it's the second time that male and female are both made in the image of God. Called them mankind in the day that they were created, or man. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. This is the third son, obviously. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. Well, what are the names of them? doesn't matter to the narrator. He's concerned about just certain people, do you see? The rest of them will find out one day, but there were obviously quite a lot of them. And there was enough to build a city in chapter 4. So, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and then this ref- refrain that we find over and over again in chapter 5, and he died. Because God had said to him, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. And he did die on the day that he ate it. took him a while to actually peg out physically, but there was separation from God immediately signaled by the fact that they knew they were naked. Signaled by the fact that they hid from God. That was immediate. Death. Uh, The corruption in the relationship between man and God which led to a corruption in the relation between man and man and man on the ground. And um, he died. Lived a long time though, didn't he? Do you believe that? Do you believe it that he lived 930 years? Come on. Really? 930 years? We're going to meet Methuselah pretty soon. He's, uh, what, 960 odd years, whatever he is. He's really getting on. Do we really believe this? Do you know that the, the Genesis account is not the only account, ancient account, that records long life 
in people before the deluge. The Sumerian king list also has that. The Sumerian king, king list is one of the oldest um, accounts of creation. And it talks about all of these kings that lived before uh, the deluge. And some of them lived for not just 900 years, some of them lived for thousands of years according to that. Now, I believe that the, uh, uh, the Sumerian king list is warped, just as its account of the, uh, the flood is warped by myth-making and memory and so on. Yet it does reflect some of the same themes. Of course, these people live for that long because they had much... Uh, you know, the degeneration hadn't set into them physically nor to the early earth. They lived in a beautiful environment. I mean, even though man was fallen, what he lived in would make this look like, you know, my backyard. So, um, chapter 5 is saying that he died, 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 and he died. Until we get to Noah, and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah got, begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then we get to chapter 6, which brings us to Noah and the flood. But before we can get to Noah and the flood, I've got one more thing to do tonight. We're not going to get to Noah and the flood tonight, don't worry. But I do have to do one more thing and I have to look into this weird thing that's going on in chapter 6, at the beginning of chapter 6. All right? No comment. All right. It's, it's our secret. Okay. Now, first of all, please notice... Uh, which line is being spoken about in chapter 5? Which genealogy of which family? Look at your Bible. No, no, no. Look at your Bible. Chapter 5, which family line from, from Adam? Is it Abel? Or is it Cain? Or is it... It's Seth. Okay? Cain has been recorded in chapter 4. This is now Seth's line. Now it came to pass when men, notice that word, men, began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Men had daughters. We're on the men here. That the sons of God <clears throat> saw the daughters of men. Who are the daughters of men? Okay, so you have of men. (coughs) 
that they were beautiful. So, these are beautiful. Is that right? All right. You know, when uh, I'm fairly good at spelling, but since uh, I've been on the computer for years and years, my spelling has just deteriorated terribly. Not as good as I used to be. But anyway. Yeah. That they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So the sons of God and the daughters of men got married. What's wrong with that? Well, let's see. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. With man. That's this bunch again. Forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So he's going to reduce. There's no more 900 years old going to go on. It's, he's gradually going to bring this age down. So by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, we're at about that. Okay. Then there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When, so the cause, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they brought children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then we move on. The wickedness of man. Um, now, why on earth does Moses stick this in there and then go on to the wickedness of man and then go on to the flood? I'm, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm going to wipe out the entire human race. I've just about had enough. I mean, he's really gone over the line now because men are marrying women. Well, obviously, that's not it, is it? Well, what about this interpretation, which is the Schofield interpretation, that... It was um, Canaanite men who were marrying Sethite daughters, Sethite women. And God said, that's not going to happen for a start. I'm going to bring a flood and just destroy everybody. That's a little bit OTT, isn't it? I mean, it's, that's, that's a little bit too much, isn't it? You're going to destroy the whole planet because uh, Canaanites and Sethites are intermarrying? Where in, the, where, where in the Bible are we told that all the Canaanites were bad and all the Sethites were good? All the Canaanites wore black and with you know, curly moustaches and all the uh, Sethites wore white and had glittering smiles. <laughs> also, I hope that you can see do you really believe that the Canaanite men looked at the Canaanite women and said, well, they're not really that attractive, but the Sethite women, you want to see them. So, somehow the Sethite women just happened to be more beautiful than the Canaanite women? Really? No, come on. This is, this is, this is trying to avoid 
the obvious, I think. And that is that the sons of God here, the Beneha Elohim, they are placed in contrast to mankind. You see, this is general. This is, this is men. When men, what, just the Canaanites? No. When men multiplied on the earth. Canaanites and Sethites multiplied on the earth. That something happened with this bunch here, the sons of God, who went into the daughters of men they shouldn't have done. Now we can find here no prohibition of Canaanites don't go over and marry Sethites. Or Sethites don't marry Canaanites. If you do, then boy are you going to get it because I'm going to destroy the whole lot of you. You know, I'm saying it that way because I want it to come across as silly as it sounds. God's not like that, folks. At this point, there was still the proclamation be plentiful. uh, Yes, yes, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yes, yeah. Did you you say it was somehow wrong that the sons of God came into daughters of Yes. Where does it say that? Well, it's implied. It's implied. Um, what we have is uh, verse 3, my spirit will not strive with man forever. Well, why? What's he done? He's ticked off about this. What's, what's happening in verses 1 and 2? And then sandwiched after that is verse 4, which again tells you the same thing. When the sons of God went into the daughters of men. So the thing that was does, uh, that annoyed God in verse three had to do with verses one, two, and four in the context. So the sons of God aren't human. All right. So what we have here, and this is how we're to um, try to understand this is that we have a problem because, first of all, we only have a little bit of information. But it's there, so we can either cut it out of the Bible because God didn't tell us enough. and So to stop the frustration, we'll just cut it out of the Bible and we won't have to deal with it. Or we can try to deal with this contrast between daughters of men, mankind generally, that's what that means. Verse 1 gives you the context for the word for daughters of men. It's men who multiplied on the earth. Uh, who are these sons of God then? Why aren't they sons of men? Why are they, son, why are they called sons of God? Well, but are they men? Well, that's what we've got to ask, isn't it? We do know this, we do know this, that that something weird happens in verse 4, that these giants are the offspring. These And the word is Nephilim. It's also used in Numbers 13. Um, these Nephilim come up. Now, there's not an awful lot said about Nephilim. And again, some people make an entire career about ministries around the Nephilim. They even write entire series of books about them. You know, obviously they're tapped into a source that I don't have. But um, 
I just know there's something strange about this bunch. And they're men of renown. They're, they're, they are important men and they, you know, um, they go about building stuff and doing stuff and that's not good. Because they're doing it in a context where man gets steady, steadily more evil. So evil that God will bring about the flood. Come down to like the attitude in which we saw in Cain's offering. Now this group has the same kind of negative attitude. There's something going on here that, uh, again, there's not enough here to be determinative um, from the context. But what we can do is that we can look at this clue. We have enough here to have a warning light to tell us the sons of God, whoever they are, they are set apart from mankind generally. And their offspring, when they decide to marry with the daughters of men, is weird. So there's something really weird going on here. Uh, can we, is there enough in the Bible to, to, uh, report on this? Right now, just a minute. Right now, there isn't. As we, as we're here in Genesis 6, we don't have enough data. But what we can say is that in the context, men is not Sethites or Cainites, and the daughters are not, uh, Cainites or Sethites. It doesn't go because man is used for mankind. Okay? All right. Um, what's the oldest book in the Bible? Job. All right. Do we find those people there? That bunch? In the book of Job? We certainly do. And the same Hebrew term is used of them. The very same Hebrew term. They're in Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2. Who do they show up with? Satan. Yeah, when the sons of God came to present themselves before God and Satan came along with them. This is not human beings. These are angelic beings that are showing up before God and Satan's among them. In Job chapter 38, let me just move there quickly. We read this. This is God speaking. Um, Let me just find the text. I think it's 38. Verse 7, or verse 6, To what were its foundations, that's the earth, fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's talking about creation. And sons of God here, well, it can't be a bunch of human beings because there was only two at the beginning. Who were the sons of God? They're, they're angels. Morning stars, stars in the Bible are often angels. Uh, Job 38 verse 7. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. 
The book of Job was written before the book of Genesis. The book of Job was probably written around about the time of Isaac, about 1800 BC. Genesis was written around about 1440 BC. It's very likely that Moses knew the book of Job. You say, well, maybe he didn't. Well, maybe he didn't. But if he did, it would explain why sons of God shows up in Genesis. Do you see? Because he might know that book. But this term is exclusive to Genesis 6, Job 1, Job 2 and Job 38. Found nowhere else in the Bible. If they were, if these sons of God were angels, bad angels, who cohabited with daughters because they found them beautiful, daughters of men, sorry, because they found them beautiful, and weird giants came as a result of them, and this weird stuff also, and afterwards too. Because we do find giants in the land, you remember the Anax? Uh, well good it seems so doesn't it someone's going to quote Matthew 22 to me right now and say but men are you know in in, um, the kingdom that there's no marriage and uh, men are not given in marriage it doesn't say they can't procreate it just says they're not married inferences you see yeah, we, we, we pull these inferences in, but it doesn't say anything about not being able to procreate. Um, every man, when he shows up in the Bible, every, no, every angel, when he shows up in the Bible, is a man. Right, I was going to say, female angels. No. There are two weird, angelic, female, birdie things that show up in Zechariah chapter 5. <laughs> And they carry this, they carry this ephod, which has got wickedness in, in it, and they carry it to the land of Shinar. Okay, that's in Zechariah chapter 5. So they're probably not that nice. Okay? No, they've got wings. Um, but every, every angel is a man. So, when, um, when Ezekiel is shown the temple, he sees a man. Sometimes he sees a man in the middle of the river. Okay? Um, Daniel sees a man, but it's the, it's the man Gabriel. In the book of Revelation, there is a man who is showing um, John these things, but he's also called an angel. In fact, uh, towards the end of the book of Revelation, uh, John wants to worship him because he's so overwhelmed by what he sees. And if I can find it quickly for you. <clears throat> See, my Bible's seen better days. <clears throat> um, chapter 20... Where are we? 22... Verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down 
to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. That's weird. He's an angel, and yet he's a prophet? Well, that's because the word angel means messenger. That's all it means. So you've got to be careful with, with that, okay? Uh, he's an angelic presence, um, but he's a guy. When uh, at, at the time of the entombment, remember John chapter 21, Peter and John raced to the tomb after Mary Magdalene told them about it. Uh, John outruns Peter because he's just faster than Peter. He stoops down, doesn't see anything. Peter goes in, sees the things, okay? Go away. Then it's back to Mary Magdalene. She sees the two men. Or one man, is it? One man or whatever. She sees a man or two men who say, what are you doing? Seeking the living among the dead. They're angels. They can appear as men. Can they procreate? Very possibly. Okay, just a couple more uh, verses. We're not going to take very long on this, I promise you. Um, But let's just turn to some other weird text while we're at it. Um, Jude. Book of Jude. No. Right. No, there's none of that goes on, I, right. I don't think. Right. So I just wanted, right, right, right. So I just wanted to clarify that. So what you're saying is They're all, not, it's possible that they could procreate with the daughters of men. Yes. It's not just that, the same thing where the daughters aren't mentioned. The daughters of God. Right, no, it's not. There's the daughters of men. It's, in the context, it's very clear that they are human. I have a question about the beginning of the whole thing. Can I ask a question? Uh, in just a sec. Okay, let me get through to the end of my thought and then I'll ignore what your question is at the end of the session. But I'll pretend that I've been predisposed to listen to it. Okay? Jude. Yeah. So, uh, verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. One historical Old Testament incident. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain. What? Well, who were they? But left their own abode. He has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Well, who could they be? And Sodom and Gomorrah and all of that stuff going on. Again, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's Genesis. So you have Exodus, verse 5. You have Genesis, verse 7. Where do you locate verse 6? Go to 1 Peter, chapter 3. 
Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That's all straightforward, it's wonderful. By whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Why does he go wonky there in verse 19? What's going on? And it's like, this, no, he doesn't prepare us for it. He just has this wonderful truth about the just for the unjust, and then goes into preaching to a bunch of spirits in prison. Well, who are they? Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Well, Genesis chapter 6 is in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared. Ah, so it's before the ark in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved. Okay, so you've got You've got angels who didn't keep their first domain, their first abode, who are in everlasting chains in judgment because of something they did. In 1 Peter chapter 3, you have spirits in prison because of something they did in the days of Noah. You have sons of God in the book of Job who are not good because they're hobnobbing with Satan. And then you have this bunch here who uh, see the daughters of men generally or generically that they're pretty and they intermarry and they produce this offspring of Nephilim. And the, what's said is, is clearly um, well, God is not happy with it. That's why verse 3 is sandwiched between verses 1, well, of course verse 3 is sandwiched between verses 1, 2 and 4, but uh, it's a weird sandwich, isn't it? It seems to go off the subject and then come back to the subject in Genesis 6. It's for that reason, to record that God doesn't like this. So I believe on the basis of that, and I've got a paper on this, if you're interested. I'm sure all of you, a couple of weeks ago, rushed off after I recommended that you uh, look at the future of an illusion and you read that book review. So here's another book review, or another thing that you can um, rush off to get, but just wait until I finish writing it. Um, Who are the... Sons of God in, I think it's, I think it's Genesis 6. Anyway, so I wrote a paper on that and I go through all the different views on that. And I've just basically given you my reasons for the angelic interpretation. That's the only one that really makes sense. By the way, 20 years ago when I wrote that paper um, very few evangelicals took that position because they were embarrassed to take this angel's position because it sounds so weird okay so it was the evangelicals who were trying to kind of you know uh, get round the text some way and you had uh, Meredith Klein who tried to say it was princely rulers and you had um, Schofield and people saying Sethites and 
and so on. And that was the basic view. And then you've got this Old Testament scholar called Willem van Gemmeren who wrote an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, this is quite a long time ago, to answer the theologian John Murray, uh, who had written about the sons of God, and uh, who basically tore him apart and said, look, exegetically, this cannot be Sethites, it cannot be princely rulers, it's angels. Deal with it. What is interesting is is that the liberals who don't believe the Bible is the word of God, they believe it's an ancient book of myths, they read Genesis chapter 6 and they said, it's angels. Of course, it's all mythological, but it clearly says it's angels. You see, because they didn't have the, they they weren't embarrassed by it, because they didn't believe it. The same as they're not embarrassed by Genesis chapter 1. They say, yeah, God creates in six days. 24 hour days. That's what it says. We don't believe it. Ha, ha, ha. Evangelicals, oh, we don't believe that. You know, no, you've got to look at the genre. You've got to look at the, uh, you know, the literary framework and everything like that. Trying to get round it. That's not what it says. So that's why I opt for that interpretation. Okay, any, uh, sorry, yeah, you did have a, you still got that question? Oh dear. Go on then. I was just wondering when you're talking about the serpent and uh, saying that the serpent is Satan, you know, where in the text, you know, did it give me enough to know that? It doesn't. That's a very good question. It doesn't. Um, Again, the only reason that we know that is from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the Jews, other than by inference, did not know that until... It was just a tempter, yes. We do know that the, the word is shining one. Where? What is? The, the Hebrew word for a serpent is shining one. So is it the same for a snake? No, it's, it's a different word. So... Yeah. But yeah, you're quite right. Again, it's not enough there to, to identify this, this serpent as Satan. As things accumulate, we get more information on it. What we're not going to do though is this. So I'll leave you with this one. What we're not going to do is that we are not going to um, reconfigure or spiritualize or transpose or morph into something else what these texts are saying. Just because we don't know from Genesis 3.15 that there's a salvation, there's a redemption that's involved with the he who's going to crush the Satan's head, the serpent's head. Um, Well, the Satan is actually true too in the Hebrew. Um, Just because that's the case, when we get extra information on it, we, we're not changing the serpent into something else. The serpent's still a serpent. Do you see? And the same with this. We're not, um, we're not saying that the serpent, by saying the serpent is Satan, um, we're not saying that um, later on, 
that's just a figurative expression. But is God speaking to Satan when he says you'll go on your belly? And yes. Yes. Oh, well, that's a different question. He's talking to, to Satan, but he's also talking to the serpent. And I don't understand, I don't think anybody understands why the serpent um, gets clobbered for being possessed by Satan. But I don't know. We're not told that. That's not, we're not given any extra information about that at all. It just happens to be the case. Any other questions or observations before we go? You are free to disagree, of course, with anything that I say. I'm just giving you what I've come up with. And if you can do better, that's fine. We'll have you up here sometime and (laughs) you can let us know. Um, But I'm not inspired. I'm just giving you, um, you know, what I believe is, is the truth. But I'm telling you, if you get these, this stuff right and you start to see things that come together, you will start to see that the Bible itself is a continuous narrative that doesn't contradict itself once you get past the Gospels. That, that everything flows, but you've got to follow the, uh, the course. And the only way to follow it is to stop inferring things that you know or think you know further on in the book. Stop yourself and read what it's saying and pretend that the rest of the book's not there or that you haven't read it yet. And just build up your knowledge that way and you will see different things. So you'll see things differently by looking at the Bible that way. Okay?